Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I want to start by giving a fairly lengthy treatment of one of the first published cases involving public safety employees who simply showed up at the rally, the January 6th Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C., but who did not approach the Capitol or end the Capitol. Uh, This is an incredible opinion. We'll post it in the show notes, the entire 91-page opinion of the Washington Court of Appeals, an opinion that really is kind of a basic treatise in freedom of speech and the right to privacy. So what happens here? Four Seattle police officers, uh, who are only referred to in the court's opinion as the does. Uh, Again, when you have very controversial cases, you tend to see courts anonymize at least some of the participants in the cases. So the four does attended former President Trump's Stop the Steal political rally uh, back in 2021 in Washington, D.C., When the Doe's returned to the state of Washington, they received complaints from the Seattle Police Department's, it's known as OPA or the Office of Police Accountability, alleging that they might have violated either the law or SPD policies during their attendance at the rally. The Doe's were ordered to participate in OPA interviews and the order explicitly said that they were required to answer all questions asked truthfully and completely and that failure to do so could result in discipline up to and including termination. So what went on in the interview? Uh, The interviewers, of course, asked about the Doe's whereabouts on January 6th and what they did on January 6th, but they went much further. They asked questions about the Doe's political beliefs and their associations, what groups they were in. Uh, They asked questions about whether the Doe's attended the rally, quote, to articulate their political views, end quote, and whether they were, quote, affiliated with any political groups, end quote, and, quote, their impressions of and reactions to the content of the rally end quote, uh, because the does were under the order to answer questions, they did so. And then fairly quickly, several members of the public filed public records requests seeking disclosure of the investigatory records. The city did uh, some small amount of analysis of its obligations under the Public Records Act, and decided it was going to disclose both the records regarding its ongoing investigation and the Doe's personnel files. In other news, the Seattle Police Department has a recruitment and retention problem. Okay, I'll I'll behave from this point forward, I promise. Uh, The Doe's sought an injunction trying to prohibit the disclosure of 
the results of the investigation and their personnel files, and the matter winds up before the Washington Supreme Court. And uh, I'm going to read probably, I don't know, six to eight sentences from the court's opinion because, as you can tell, I thought the court did a really good job analyzing the constitutional issues here. And the court uh, starts off by firing a very broad salvo. The court notes that, and I'm quoting, in the political realm, thought and action are presumptively immune from inquisition by political authority. The federal constitution protects not only the right of individuals to engage in political expression and association, but also to maintain the privacy in doing so. So what the court's saying, in other words, is that the freedom of speech, freedom of association, that are both captured by the First Amendment to the Constitution, both of them have a privacy component. The notion that government, whether it's acting as an employer or acting in some sort of regulatory manner, government can't breach that right to privacy except under the most extraordinary circumstances. This is not new law at all. Uh, there are Supreme Court cases going back 50, 60 years involving uh, state governments. These were governments that were in the southern part of the U.S. that were trying to get the NAACP to force the NAACP to disclose its membership rosters. And the United States Supreme Court in that case said, no, there is a privacy element to speech. So why is there a privacy element to speech? Uh, back to the Washington Supreme Court, and I'm quoting, the Supreme Court of the United States has recognized a pervasive right of privacy against governmental intrusion that is implicit in the First Amendment. This tradition of anonymity in the advocacy of political causes is perhaps best exemplified by the secret ballot, the hard-won right to vote one's conscience without fear of retaliation. Now here comes the important part. The mere summoning of a witness and compelling him to testify against his will about his political beliefs, expressions, or associations is a measure of governmental interference. And when those forced revelations concern matters that are unorthodox, unpopular, or even hateful to the general public, the reaction in the life of the witness may be disastrous. Now here the court turns to, uh, I think, a very important second aspect of the First Amendment. And that is the First Amendment was designed not only to protect the rights of speakers, let me call them speakers, people who express an opinion in writing or through demonstrations or in words, the First Amendment recognizes the right of speakers to speak. But the First Amendment is also crafted 
in a way to protect those of us who would hear the speech. Back to the Washington Supreme Court. Quote, it is not only those individuals compelled to disclose their beliefs who may be impacted. To the contrary, the Supreme Court has recognized an additional, more subtle, and immeasurable effect upon those who tend to adhere to even the most orthodox and uncontroversial views and associations in order that they might avoid a similar fate at some future time. And what that is, of course, is what I've described as the right to receive information that is protected by the First Amendment. I'm a little bit passionate about this because way back in 1975, when I was in law school, I actually wrote a law review article on the right to receive information. Washington Supreme Court somehow didn't see fit to cite that article, shame on them. But this is a principle that's been around like for decades and decades, that we protect speech both for the speaker and for those of us who wish to hear the speech. All right, back to the court's opinion. What does it do now that it has the constitutional landscape fully laid out? The court says, and I'm quoting, both the Doe's attendance at the January 6th rally and their compelled statements to investigators implicate the First Amendment. Exposure by the government of this information through disclosure of the unredacted requested records would impinge the Doe's constitutional right to anonymity in their political beliefs and associations. Now, the folks who were requesting the documents, who weren't identified in the court's opinion, uh, had some arguments themselves. Uh, they said, first of all, the Doe's attendance at the January 6th rally, that's not a protected constitutional privacy right. And even if the disclosure of the Doe's identities uh, in the requested records does implicate a First Amendment right, the Doe's relinquish that right by cooperating with OPA's investigation. Uh, the court has little time for either of those arguments. With respect to the you waived your rights by cooperating with the investigation, the court says, uh, remember when the Doe's were ordered to give a statement upon pain of forfeiting their job if they did not do so? doesn't sound like a voluntary waiver of their First Amendment rights. And secondly, the court says with respect to the disclosure of the Doe's identities, the court says it's up to an individual to disclose when they're participating in a First Amendment protected activity. It is not up to the government to interfere with that decision to disclose or not disclose their identity. So the court ends up sending the case back down to the trial court with a holding that the requested documents were fully protected by the federal constitutional right to privacy. Is this the same way this issue is going to come out in the dozens of other cases around the country involving uh, 
public safety employees who participated in the January 6th rally? I think so. As you can tell, I think this is pretty basic constitutional law. And I think that the ground that was plowed over the 91 pages written by the Washington Court of Appeals, I think that's going to be the path that all courts take. Next up, a case from St. Louis that is a, I think, an excellent study in how not to conduct a criminal investigation of one of your employees. Uh, this is a case involving Zachariah Foltz, who's a police officer with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Back in 2018, investigators at the department's Internal Affairs Division interviewed the parents of a 12-year-old girl who alleged that their child had a sexual relationship with an officer whose initials are SK. Uh, again, this is a court anonymizing uh, a public safety employee's name in the course of its opinion. According to the child's diary, she had had a sexual encounter with Officer S.K. when he picked her up in his patrol car. Now, as a result of these allegations, the department instigates two investigations. One's an internal affairs investigation. That's led by the Internal Affairs Division. And the second is a criminal investigation. Now, the department has a policy that criminal and disciplinary investigations should remain on separate but parallel tracks. If you're going to do concurrent investigations, they should be on separate and parallel tracks, and one should never interfere with or participate in the other. You need to build a wall right down the middle of the room and whatever goes on in the IA investigation should not be relayed to what whoever is doing the criminal investigation, particularly if the information that could be relayed is the statement of the employee or the fruits of the statement of the employee. So the department's rules, at least, seem to recognize this notion that if you're going to do a concurrent investigation, and by the way, I typically advise employers against doing a concurrent investigation because of the risks under the Garrity rule, but if you're going to do it, keep the investigations separate from each other. So the department uh, ends up uh, trying to interview Officer Foltz as a witness in the internal investigation. Uh, Foltz had uh, come to the IAD's interview with an attorney. And before the interview, the commanding officer, lieutenant, tells Foltz's attorney that Foltz was not the subject of the investigation, but was a potential witness in the internal and criminal investigations of Officer SK. Okay, so we got a, a, a pure witness officer here. Uh, let's see how the department handles it. Well, Foltz's attorney reacts immediately by saying, look, this is the first interview that you have done in this investigation. How's the prosecuting attorney going to treat this case? 
because after all, it's the prosecuting attorney, not you, Lieutenant. It's the prosecuting attorney who might bring charges, charge either SK or charge Foltz or charge some other individual. Uh, and Foltz, Foltz's attorney, uh, expresses concern that they just don't know which way this is going to go. But nonetheless, Foltz participates in the investigation. And the investigation starts with kind of the usual way you would expect it to start. Foltz is given what is referred to in St. Louis as an advice of rights form, uh, which is really a reverse Garrity warning. Uh, and this is the warning that the employee is ordered to answer questions. And if the employee refuses to answer, they could be subject to uh, discipline or discharge and promises immunity under Garrity that statements and the fruits of the statements can't be used in any criminal proceedings against the employee. Okay, the department seems to be, again, on the right track by uh, reading false is reverse Garrity warnings. Uh, but something very unusual is going on at this point in time. The internal affairs investigator and the criminal investigator are both in the room. So uh, once Foltz is given his reverse Garrity warning, he says he understands it, he signs the form. What happens next is the IA investigator reads Foltz his Miranda rights. You know, Miranda rights, the right to remain silent. Uh, I, I long protected by a U.S. Supreme Court decision, and as the internal affairs investigator is reading Foltz's Miranda rights, the criminal investigator interrupts and said, hey, you don't need to do that. You don't need to read him his Miranda rights because Foltz is not going to make any statements in the criminal investigation. The criminal investigator asks Foltz to confirm that that he was declining to make a statement in the criminal investigation. Uh, and Foltz said, yeah, I understand, and I don't want to make a statement to you, criminal investigator. But the criminal investigator stays in the room. And the internal affairs investigator then questions Foltz about all of the allegations between Officer SK and the child uh, and Foltz answers all of those questions. And eventually, the department fires Foltz for, and I'm quoting, failure to cooperate in the criminal investigation which violated the code of ethics, which was contrary to the department's purpose of investigating crime and holding people accountable for criminal acts, and suggested to the public that the police department holds its officers to different standards than other citizens, end quote. You, by this point, you should be scratching your head, right? So the internal affairs investigator is conducting an interview of Foltz, and there sitting in the corner is the criminal investigator. Foltz is saying, you just read me my Miranda rights, You've told me I don't have to answer any questions. I'm not talking to the criminal investigator. 
and the criminal investigator stays in the room. And then Fultz makes a complete statement to both the internal affairs investigator and the criminal investigator, and then gets fired for not cooperating with the criminal investigation. Anything wrong here, perhaps? The Missouri Court of Appeals says there is a lot wrong with this situation. And the court uh, talks about the basic principles of the decision of Garrity versus New Jersey. Uh, and then the court ends up talking about the relationship between Garrity and Miranda. So uh, let's turn to the court's opinion. The court says, quote, it's undisputed that Fultz refused to speak to the criminal investigator, even though this refusal was not accompanied by any oral invocation of the Fifth Amendment. It was, as a matter of law, an invocation of his right to remain silent. So what, what the court is saying here is basically, uh, look, why'd you read Miranda? You told him he had a right to remain silent. You have to honor that request. That in, a criminal investigator can't be in the room. And let me uh, go on at greater length from the court's opinion. Quote, by the department's policy, Garrity statements made in an internal investigation are protected by immunity and can't be shared with any criminal investigation. Here comes the important line. This implies that statements made in a criminal investigation do not automatically have the same protections because the criminal investigator testified that prior to a criminal interview, Miranda warnings are provided. There would be no reason to provide Miranda warnings if the common understanding was that the statements the witness made would be provided with Garrity immunity. Uh, and this is something that I've seen from time to time in various places around the country uh, where you'll see an investigation start with the employer reading Garrity rights, uh, the employee saying, yeah, I understand, I'm compelled to give a statement here, and then the employer reads Miranda rights. And what that does is it uh, bluntly completely messes up uh, certainly the criminal investigation into the employee and even has implications with respect to the disciplinary investigation of the employee. Uh, what's the end result in the St. Louis case? Uh, reinstatement with back pay uh, for faults. And the court ends with this line, quote, in the absence of explicit assurances that he would be entitled to immunity for the second statement, the one he made to the criminal investigators, Fultz was free to assume that no immunity would attach, end quote, and that the statement would not be mandatory. Next up, a case from the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland involving text messages and kind of an interesting twist on the usual text message kind of case. So this all starts in October 2020 
when several officers in the department file an internal complaint against a fellow police officer who's identified by the court only as W. And the complaint alleges that W had used excessive force in choking a young man. There was surveillance video of the incident, and that video revealed that W had used his personal cell phone to take pictures of the victim. The department sought and got a warrant to seize uh, W's cell phone and search its contents. And while they searched the contents, when they did, they discovered a series of 16 racist and demeaning messages written by another officer, Anthony Brook, that had been sent to W's cell phone. Uh, these messages, they're all in the court's opinion. I'll read you about two or three of them. We don't need to hear any more than that. Uh, so one of them said, FBI did search warrants on two Prince George's Police Department officers today out in District 4. Guess what race they are. That's what W uh, texted. And Brooke responded with, yep. And then W said, no doubt, black people in a white man's job, end quote. Uh, another text message said, three homicides in District 4 last night. I love it, end quote, all caps. And a third one said, hearing about homicides like that and just imagining the whole block out there screaming and crying brings true warmth and happiness to my heart, uh, end quote. So the department, after looking at these text messages, initiates a separate investigation into Brooke. We're now no longer concerned with W. His case goes in whatever direction it goes. We're only concerned with Brooke. The department brought 16 charges against Brooke, one for each of the text messages, and the initial recommendation is for fines and termination. Yeah. Fines, uh, that's a very unusual disciplinary penalty. And where I've seen it before, it's almost always in conjunction with uh, no other discipline. It's an alternative for discipline. But to fine someone and terminate them, that's a very unusual penalty. You can see the department was incredibly upset at both W and Brooke. Well, before a disciplinary hearing can be held, uh, Brooke files a lawsuit in a trial court alleging that the court should stop the disciplinary hearing from going forward because his text messages, the use of them to discipline him, would violate his free speech rights under the First Amendment. A trial court agrees with Brooke and prohibits the investigation from going any further, the department appeals, and the case ends up in the Maryland Court of Appeals. And here's what the key issue is. Are the text messages about a matter of public concern? And the reason that is important is the First Amendment generally only protects speech that is a matter of public concern. Uh, and in this case, the trial court that ended up stopping the investigation held 
that racist texts by a police officer were, by definition, a matter of public concern. The Court of Appeals says, nope, you have misunderstood the test. The court says in order for something to be a matter of public concern, the topic of the speech to be a matter of public concern, it must, quote, have some objective nexus to the public welfare and involve an issue of social, political, or other interest to a community. Uh, the courts goes on to recite the basic test that if an employee's speech involves a matter of public concern, then the court has to apply a balancing test, balancing the interests of the employee and communicating about matters of public concern against the interest of the public employer in promoting the efficiency of the services it provides to the public. Uh, the court says, look, we think the trial court got this definition of public concern wrong. The trial court thought public concern meant, quote, the incident would cause concern to the public or would cause the public to be concerned. And the Court of Appeals says that's wrong because the test is whether or not the speech objectively pertains to public welfare rather than to merely private interests or viewpoints. The court ends up saying, quote, while we have no doubt that a police officer sending racist text messages would cause the public to be concerned, further inquiry is needed to determine whether the subject of the text messages objectively pertains to the public welfare. End quote. And so the court ends up sending the case back to the trial court uh, for a text message by text message analysis of whether or not the text were a matter of public concern. Bluntly, I think that's a form of punishment. Uh, I think it's pretty easy when you look at these text messages. And again, we'll provide you with the opinion uh, in the show notes for this podcast. I think it's pretty easy when you look at those text messages to make the judgment that a court is going to say that those simply aren't a matter of public concern. That's griping uh, and that's making racist statements. And those sorts of things are not matter of pu a public concern. I think what the Court of Appeals is doing here is sending it back to the trial court uh, to make the trial court go through the text message by text message exercise of applying the First Amendment standards. Uh, and that's going to be painful uh, for the trial court, I can guarantee you. Now, one thing you may be wondering, uh, these were messages sent, apparently, as nearly as we can tell from the opinion, on personal cell phones. Isn't there a right to privacy that attaches to personal cell phones? And uh, let's look at this first from the standpoint of Officer W, whose cell phone was actually seized and analyzed. Well, remember I said that the department got a warrant 
before it uh, analyzed or before it sees and analyzed the contents of the cell phone. What the Fourth Amendment requires is that before forcing an employee to divulge the contents of her or his cell phone, an employer must get a warrant and probable cause and based upon probable cause. The department did it right here. It got that warrant. But what about Brooke? Brooke, uh, didn't he have a, a right to privacy in the text messages that he sent? Well, let's think back to that Seattle case for a moment that I started off the podcast with. There might be a right to privacy, but only if the underlying statements are constitutionally protected. And when I say there might be a right to privacy, I'm being very generous. Because once you say something, once you disperse it to the world, once you send it to somebody else in the form of a text message, you've lost your right to privacy in that message in almost every case. So I don't think there's a chance that either W or Brooke would have their privacy rights in these text messages in any way impacted by what the employer did in this case. Next up, we have a case involving the National Police Association. First of all, what is the National Police Association? You may have heard of the Fraternal Order of Police or the National Association of Police Organizations, NAPO, or IUPA, the International Union of Police Associations. But what is the National Police Association? Well, the National Police Association is a nonprofit organization uh, out of Indiana that describes its purposes as, quote, educating supporters of law enforcement in how to help police departments accomplish their goals. It's not a union, and it describes its purpose as educating supporters of law enforcement in how to help police departments. In 2018 and 2019, a number of departments around the country took issue with fundraising mailers that the NPA, the National Police Association, had sent to their residents. Uh, the departments characterized the solicitations as deceptive, and the result was a scam alert uh, that was widely circulated. The Indianapolis Star, which is the local newspaper in Indianapolis, and the Associated Press both reported on the scam alerts. Uh, so, for example, the Star published an article under the headline, this Indianapolis charity says it helps police. Police chiefs say it's a scam, end quote. In 2019, the NPA then sues a city, the city of Trenton, uh, and two of its officers uh, based upon their statements that were included in the article published by the Indianapolis Star. 
So yes, an organization known as the National Police Association is suing two police officers, as well as a city. After these lawsuits were filed, the Star writes a follow-up article. Remember the old line, you don't engage in a war of words with anybody who buys ink by the barrel? Uh, The Star publishes a follow-up article that's entitled, quote, a pro-police Indianapolis nonprofit is suing two police officers, end quote. And in this subsequent article, of course, the newspaper recaps the reporting that it did on the initial scam allegations. The NPA then sues the publishers, alleging that its reports were libelous. It's unclear from the court's opinion what actually happens to the lawsuit against the two officers in the city. What we're concerned with now is the NPA's lawsuit against the Associated Press and the Indianapolis Star. And the NPA's claim is uh, the reports that were made were defamation. Uh, They were libelous. By the way, trivia, what's the difference between libel and slander? Libel is written defamation. Slander is oral defamation. Uh, Second piece of trivia, is that information of any use to anybody whatsoever today? Answer, no. The distinction has uh, been without any sort of importance for years and years under the law. Okay, back to the lawsuit. So a trial court dismisses NPA's lawsuit And uh, the case ends up before the Federal Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. You've heard me praise the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals before. Uh, I think it's uh, one of the best federal courts in the country, uh, along with the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They're very different politically. The Seventh Circuit, much more conservative than the Second Circuit. Second Circuit is, think New York, Seventh Circuit, think Chicago area, Indiana, and the like. Uh, So Seventh Circuit, uh, I think, distinctly more conservative, particularly on labor law issues. But I'll tell you, you read an opinion from either of these courts, and they are very sound and very well written. So at any rate, this case goes to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court says, NPA, you are out of here. Why? Why would the NPA be dismissed? Why would the lawsuit be dismissed? The court says, well, there is something called the single publication rule. And what the single publication rule is is it's a piece of common law. Common law is judge-made law. It's a piece of common law that limits defamation liability to the first publication of a work. And the court says that uh, courts all over the country, state courts, federal courts, courts of appeals, have applied the single publication rule to online information such as these newsletter articles. And the court says uh, the only time uh, that anybody even conceivably would have been liable here would be the first set of publications, not the subsequent reprinting 
by the Associated Press and the Indianapolis Star that is the subject of this lawsuit. Uh, and uh, the court ends up saying, quote, many other cases have come before courts across the country, including this one, attempting to argue that online articles are subject to defamation liability based upon post-publication facts. Most of these arguments have been unsuccessful and there is no basis for the NPA's theory of liability. Now, a little bit more about the NPA, uh, because I, I've gotten complaints uh, about the NPA on a pretty steady basis ever since it was formed, um, because uh, you know I, I largely represent uh, police and fire unions, and I'll tell you, police unions get pretty upset about some of the fundraising tactics that have been used by the NPA. Uh, so when I saw this article, I thought, well, it's just kind of a good time to go look at the NPA's Form 990. What's a Form 990? It's an IRS form that all nonprofits have to file with the Internal Revenue Service uh, once a year. The most recent Form 990, which we're posting with the show notes for the NPA, shows income of Get ready, hold on to your hats if you're wearing them. Income of $6.044 million, all of which were, was listed as gifts or contributions. Uh, what did the NPA spend this money on? It paid a collection of five independent contractors, all of whom seemed to be involved in some aspect of fundraising, a total of $3.5 million. Well, what about benefits uh, paid to police officers? The Form 990 reports, and I'm quoting, no grants or other assistance to domestic organizations, domestic governments, or domestic individuals, and, quote, no benefits paid to or for members. Anytime you see a fundraising campaign on behalf of a public safety uh, organization and you don't recognize the name of the organization, go look for the Form 990. Uh, they're all online. You, know, you can find them very easily. Um, they're kind of long. You know, they can be a couple dozen pages depending upon uh, how much the organization has ongoing but you can learn an awful lot uh, from the Form 990s. Quote, no benefits paid to or for members. That's it. That's our October edition of First Thursday. Hope you join us next month. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting articles, some of which I just didn't have time to get to today. Uh, also hope to see you sometime in, uh, in fact, I think it's next week in October, where LRIS is doing a collective bargaining seminar in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, the last seminar of the year for LRIS will be in November. Uh, it's going to be on advanced police discipline, a completely uh, revamped curriculum for that seminar. 
just go to LRIS.com for more information. Uh, thank you for uh, bearing with me on the sound on this particular podcast. Uh, we're using some backup equipment because we had a computer uh, absolutely completely freeze up, uh, but uh, we got through it. So thank you for joining me. This is Will Aitchison signing off.